Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. Having a good idea doesn't get stuff. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara, Episode 3. In today's conversation, I spoke with Dr. Kathleen Maxwell, a professor of art history at Santa Clara University. In this episode, we get into some of her experiences traveling both in the United States and abroad. She has some jaw-dropping stories about her travels. We talk about how she discovered her love for art, advice she has for students, and the value of learning and working across disciplines. You can visit VoicesOfSantaClara.com to see all the episodes, and I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on the iTunes podcast app. So please enjoy the conversation. To start off, could you describe your education growing up? Okay. I was raised in Catholic school through ninth grade, then I switched into the public high school because it was actually a better education. Uh, in Wellesley, it was the dumb rich kids who went off to boarding school <laughs> because the the uh, local school system was, was quite strong. But at any rate, um, I went to college. I went to three different universities. I started at Denison in Ohio. Don't ask me why, but I did. And it was fine, had really great faculty. And then I um, took Antioch University's program to Aberdeen, Scotland for a year. And I did that. I had originally thought, well, I'll go to France or Germany because I'd always taken a lot of languages in high school and college to compensate for terrible math grades. I was not my mother's daughter, as you can see. And um, so I thought I would go to Germany or France. But I at, at Denison, when you came back from junior year abroad, you had to read letter. You had to write a letter about your experience before they would give you credit for it. So um, I read all the letters that were there, and the ones to Aberdeen, Scotland, were so strong because there were so few Americans there. You couldn't hang out in an American ghetto. You know, you couldn't. You, there were very few Americans, and you really had to make it with the the local student body. You went to local university. You know, of, of uh, Aberdeen, and it just sounded like a much um, stronger and more credible experience than some of the there were students who were saying my French actually got worse in Paris because I hung out with so many Americans so I thought well okay I'm gonna do Scotland and uh, and I did and it was tough because I could hardly understand some of the people uh, in northern Scotland the dialect was very strong you know it was English technically but <laughs> it was hard to understand and I don't think I understood my landlady until you know, maybe nine months into it, you know, we finally could communicate. But um, then when I finished there, I followed my boyfriend from Denison, who graduated down to Dallas, Texas. And that was a much tougher adjustment than going to Scotland in some ways. One, because we didn't end up together in the long run. And two, because Texas just seemed like another planet. I mean, and uh, it was filled, Dallas was filled with trust fund babies, or at least SMU was. And it just seemed so weird, although the faculty was great. I really had wonderful faculty there. And so, um, you know, I waitressed and I worked and took a lot of courses. And in three semesters, I had to do an extra semester in order to graduate from there. I 
turned to art history there, really. I'd taken my first art history course in Scotland, but it wasn't very good. But in uh, SMU, they just started their master's degree in art history, so they had a very, you know, really had a respectable program. And I'm still in touch with my undergraduate mentor there. She turned out to be um, a big scholar in Byzantine studies, Byzantine manuscripts. And I didn't even know that at the time, of course, you know, we often don't know as students what our professors are doing, especially as undergrads. But at any rate, um, she encouraged me to apply to the University of Chicago for graduate school. And so I did. And, um, and then I spent the next four years there. So Chicago actually feels like home because I spent so much more time there um, as a student than I did any of the other places. Um, and... Um, I went into medieval studies, Western medieval there, um, thinking I'd probably do architecture, maybe manuscripts. And then they had tremendous turnover. <laughs> you know, they had a famous scholar named Herbert Kessler, but he left after my first year. He did agree to see me through my thesis. So I got my master's with him. And then they, they had, a, you know, just other scholars kind of coming through, not getting tenure or not staying. And then finally, in my third year of graduate school, of coursework, Robert Nelson arrived. And he was just four and a half years older than me. Um, but he was great. He was just a terrific scholar and very serious. And so that's when I started doing Byzantine, that is Greek manuscripts, and, um, and sort of took off from there. Mm -hmm. And we actually just two weeks ago had a big tribute for him at our national conference mm -hmm. that was held at the University of uh, Minneapolis. It was mm -hmm. really fun. Throughout your life, kind of starting in college, you took a lot of opportunities to uh, go abroad in oh, languages. So yeah. what, what kind of got you interested in that? And are there any experiences Well, that? when I was a kid, I was raised in a very wealthy town. So my friends would often travel more than I would, even going off to camp. And I remember feeling very stuck. And I thought, well, when I was 12, I really wanted to be a stewardess because stewardesses travel, right? Uh, but then I suddenly was five, seven and a half, and that was the limit. The cutoff was like five, seven, five, eight. You couldn't be taller than that back then. So that's when I started to slump. And I still have bad posture to this day because of it. Because I, I thought, oh my God, that's my career, you know, and it's closing off because I'm growing. I thought I'd be six feet tall at that point. And, um, but I really always wanted to get out and see the world. And I'm not great at languages, believe me. I, I'm, my husband is really terrific at languages, but I'm not. But I can do reading knowledge. I can move up to that stage all right pretty quickly. Um, and that's what I needed for, for, for art history, as it turned out. But I didn't figure out my major. I didn't declare it until the beginning of my senior year. And that's when I realized that in art history, you're not restricted. Um, there aren't strong disciplinary boundaries because you can't know enough about not just art, but history, politics, religion, any, any aspect of the culture. Economics are really important in art because art tends to be influenced by people. Where, wherever they're trading, they tend to take on more influences. Um, so there, there aren't the disciplinary boundaries. And the more multidisciplinary you are in your in your approach, I mean, philosophy, anything really that you that you can think of, the stronger your research typically is. And I love that because I had a terrible time deciding on a major. I just thought, oh, I like this and I like that and I like 
like this. Although I knew it was probably not going to be mathematics. <laughs> um, um, I'm not sure I answered your question though. Yeah. So then, did you have any um, experiences abroad that that helped shape you, or uh, any memorable from from traveling? It was really after graduate school yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, well, it was really hard traveling for nine months by yourself, and I had a I had a scholarship. Um, but it was only for $4,000, and I think I was able to save another $500 before I left. But the dollar wasn't particularly strong um, when I was abroad. I started in 1980, and uh, I was really pinching pennies. It was really tight. Um, and if my boyfriend hadn't come over, he did, um, he did a three-week internship in London at one point, so... That took care of me, and then he came over another time for a vacation for a couple of weeks, and we, he wanted to go skiing in Switzerland, and who was I to say no to that? So I remember going to the flea market in Paris and buying a ski outfit so I could be presentable in, in, on the Swiss Alps, right? Um, and spending something like $80 on that and thinking, oh, my God, you know, how am I going to eat for the next two weeks? You know, But at any rate, it was tight. It was really tight. And um, so that's certainly formative, but it was also so exciting because my knowledge of manuscripts up to that point had been theoretical. I hadn't been able to handle that many. There were some at the University of Chicago, but you know there aren't that many medieval manuscripts in the Midwest. And so um, to be able to go to all the major collections, because Greek manuscripts tend to be where princes and kings and popes were, in the Renaissance and thereafter, because they became culturally significant to them. They wanted to collect them. They were a sign of their status. And that's why the Vatican has such a wonderful collection, or Venice, or you know, Vienna, or London, Oxford. All these places have wonderful collections. So I wasn't going necessarily spending a lot of time in Greece to look at manuscripts, although there are some there. It was more in Western Europe. You know, and as far as going to Istanbul to look at manuscripts, there are almost none there because they were all sold to Renaissance princes. You know, that was a major form of trade. So I, I definitely had experiences that shaped me there. I mean, just interacting with people, and and then early on, I made a discovery uh, in the Vatican Museum that I wanted to publish, and that was a tremendous boost to me because I always knew I'd finish a dissertation because I'm kind of highly disciplined and, you know, I'll do stuff. But I didn't know if I would have opportunities for real creativity. And discovering a manuscript and placing it within a group of manuscripts that had already been published, but they had missed this one, was very exciting to me. And it actually ended up going into the top journal. So that was a real boost, and it kind of got me through the long years of writing the dissertation. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, but my husband is the first member of his family born outside of Italy. So it was wonderful to meet somebody who had a huge appreciation for art history and for culture. Uh, he was educated at the University of Chicago undergrad as well. So he was there, and they're famous for their core curriculum. So he was very well educated, and he, he really did appreciate what I was doing. And a lot of guys might not have at that point. And, of course, being a good at a certain point, wife and daughter-in-law, I had to go to Italy in order to see his family regularly. So I was very fortunate 
that I was able to, you know, I spent a lot of time in Rome and Venice as a result. His father's family's Venetian and his mother's family was from Rome. Mm. So I was I was very lucky in that respect. And then what about what about travels uh, mm-hmm. since then? Do you have any stories or experiences from that that have been surprising or unexpected or where you've learned something new? Um well, probably the most surprising thing that ever happened to me was being in a plane accident. That was something that happened before with my husband before we got married. As a matter of fact, we were squabbling about when we would get married, and I thought he was dragging his feet. Uh, because when I met him, I'd actually been engaged to somebody else, and I broke off that engagement in order to follow up with him. And, uh, and that had been three years, three and a half years earlier, so I think I was like you know, I'm going to turn 30 soon, you know, it's time to get married. But he wasn't so convinced it was time to get married. So we, um, we were on a vacation. We were living in um, Boston at the time, and we flew out here to see his sister who lived in Berkeley. And on the way back, we stopped in New Jersey before transferring to a flight to Boston. And it was in uh, January, it was a terrific snowstorm. And there'd just been a horrible plane accident the week before in D.C. when a plane hadn't been properly de-iced and it crashed into one of the bridges over the Potomac. Right downtown D.C. was a horrible accident. So this was on everybody's mind. So we're in um, Newark, I think, waiting for the flight to, um, you know, people to deplane and load up again. And there were supposed to be very few people on the flight. And I noticed that we were very delayed. And it was blizzard conditions, just so much snow. And we looked at each other and said, should we get off and take a train instead? Then we thought, no, they won't fly if it's not safe. And pretty soon, after about an hour, the plane filled up because all the other flights had canceled. And I was, we were on World Airlines, which was a discount airline back then. And um, uh, finally, we took off and everything seemed fine, and we landed, um, and um, we didn't seem to slow down. We just, you know, after a few seconds, you know, I looked at my husband, and I said, I don't think we're slowing down. And then the next thing we felt was sort of when you're on the road, when you slip off into the shoulder and it doesn't sound good, it felt like that. I thought, oh, my God. And then there was this terrible crashing sound. You know, I thought, oh we're hitting the terminal. I didn't, you don't know where you're going. I thought, oh, we're hitting the terminal. And then the, um, what had actually happened was that the pilot had gone off the runway and into uh, Boston Harbor in order to avoid all of these pylons of lights at the end of the runway uh, that my father's company had installed just a year or two before to guide flights in and out of the airport. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion and we would have died, obviously, because, you know, that goes out a quarter of a mile into the water. And uh, instead, he had he was a Vietnam, you know, he'd flown in Vietnam. So he died, he went off to the right. We went into down an embankment and into the harbor. And with all of that excitement, the cockpit broke off from the plane and and flipped forward and the seam for the cockpit is right after the first row of seats we didn't realize that at the time but we were in about row eight and um and so we thought 
everybody in the cockpit was dead, we just assumed. And this huge wave of water came over us. And my husband remembers thinking, of course, I had my eyes closed. So he remembers thinking, oh, we survived impact. Now we're going to drown. Right? <laughs> and, uh, and it was January. It was definitely cold and everything. So, But at any rate, it, um, it turned out that because it was World Airlines, we were in what was effectively first class, but there's no first class on World Airlines. So we went back to look for a stewardess and um and the stewardesses didn't know what had happened at the front of the plane because there were curtains literally felt you know velvet curtains separating and we said we need to get out and she said no we are awaiting word from the pilot sit down and remove your shoes <laughs> but they didn't know that it had broken off and we said no we really need to get out so it was like a bad joke you know we used to tell these atomic jokes you know sit down bend over and kiss your ass goodbye, right? That was what we used to say in elementary school during the Cuban Missile Crisis and things like that. And so my husband and I are down like this, and we're sitting next to each other, and I'm whispering hoarsely to him saying, we have to get out of here. And the engine was still going, the big engine at the back of the plane, over the plane, the jet was still going. I thought, this thing's going to explode. We've got to get out of here. So he got up and opened the emergency door, and that was very anticlimactic because it, it doesn't just open. It goes, eh, 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 you know, like an inch a second, right? And when it finally opened, what was supposed to be the chute just blew up against the airplane, you know, that raft-like chute that you're supposed to be able to jump out because of the jet engine up above was sucking it up. But somebody at the same time had opened the right door and that one, Maybe it's the opposite, but at any rate, one of the doors w went up and the chute went down. So we could crawl, kind of walk out to the engine, the wing, and the wing goes back like this. And so we were able to jump to the embankment at the edge of the um, wing. But it was amazing because this woman in front of us was fully loaded. She was tiny. She couldn't have been more than like five feet tall. And she had a backpack. She had luggage. She had her purse. And she slipped off the wing and went into the water. And I, I saw this happen. And my husband was in front of me. And he leaned over. And my husband's no he-man, right? And he picked her up by the scruff of her collar, right? And lifted her up like this, like a robot, and put her back down on the wing and I remember thinking he's gonna feel that tomorrow <laughs> just oh, even god. then it was funny I just really oh my god I can't believe you know this is adrenaline at work right <laughs> so it was pretty funny but um anyway we we uh scrambled up the snowy embankment and then we got to the tarmac which looked fine but it was all black ice and so everybody started like flying, you know, like a banana peel fall, you know. And then in a few minutes, Hertz rental car buses came to pick us up. <laughs> it was just... So we're waiting for the bus to fill up as everybody gets off the plane. And then at the very end, the pilots came in soaking wet. But they came in and were like, we applauded. We we're so excited because we just assumed they were dead. It never even occurred to us to try and fish them out. I mean... The human mind in, in an emergency is not necessarily a predictable thing. It never even occurred to us, but they had gotten out and they made it up. Um, 
But unfortunately, people did die. Two people died that were in the first row that were thrown into the water, an elderly man and his son who couldn't swim and wasn't, wasn't well, apparently. Um, and a lot of people were injured. Never unfasten your seatbelt before you get to the gate because people lost teeth and they injured their backs because, you know, a lot of people, you hear that click as soon as they touch down. Don't do that. <laughs> because some people had some pretty amazing injuries. Anyway, so our baggage, which included the first 100 pages of my dissertation, um, was underwater for five days. And the water only went up to the floor line. So that's why we didn't drown, obviously, just by luck. Um, the water in the plane only went up to literally at the floor line. And, but the baggage was under there for five days before they got it out. But I had written my dissertation in a cross pen. I don't know if you ever heard of cross pens. They used to be quite famous. And the ink didn't bleed. So it was very nice because it, it stayed in good shape. And then I had a microfilm in the luggage too of my manuscript from Paris which cost me a fortune. I was just very expensive. And um, when Kodak Labs out in Framingham heard about this, they washed it for me and fixed it. And they made it better than it had been. They, you know, like it proved the contrast. <laughs> so that was kind of funny. But it wasn't funny. I mean, it took, I mean, I always knew I'd fly again because you know, I wanted to do research and I was obviously going to have to go to Europe and my husband's family was in Europe. There's no way I was going to give up flying, but it was tough getting back on a plane for a while after that. But I'd already developed before the accident a healthy fear of flying. And so, you know, that was probably stupid, but... Wow, that's an incredible story. But it, it all it all worked out. And then the ne we had to fly a month later to go visit friends in D.C., and I took a Valium. But the Valium knocked me out for the entire weekend. About the time I was finally feeling like myself again on Sunday, I had to take another one to get it back on the plane to go back. And I said, this is not going to work. And so then I tried beta blockers, and that was helpful. And a few years later, we had kids, and I had to fake it for the kids because I didn't want my kids to be afraid of flying. And uh, and you fake it enough, and you finally, it's true, you do get used to it. And I'm a great flyer now. I, I've been a great flyer for decades but um, but it's I think you do go through these phobic phases in life, and I think one of them is in your late twenties or your second half of your twenties when you suddenly realize, oh God, I'm putting all my trust and faith in that individual who's flying this plane, and you know. But it was fine. It's mm -hmm. I mean I'm, I'm a good flyer now. I fly all the time. Yeah, and I'd love to I'd love to ask a little bit about uh, art as well. So if we we, <laughs> we have a Let's imagine we have a student who maybe, um, as a child, was never a great artist, and so mm -hmm. they just they just don't study it. Maybe they're right. doing business or engineering in college. Why should that student study art? Well, that's really interesting because I'm certainly no artist. I mean, I can't create art, and you know that old dictum that those who can't do teach, right? <laughs> but um, one of the things that I think um, opened my eyes to the arts was um, the fact that boyfriend I dated in college was an artist. So he took me through every museum and every city we ever visited, you know, all, you know, New York, DC, Boston. And I think it really opened um, my eyes. I think I found it more interesting than I thought I would. And um, because being the son of an, you know, civil engineer and a physicist, 
arts, they weren't disdained by any means, but it was like, well, how are you going to make a living? They were certainly worried about it. But I think today the arts, because of media, because of our screen mentality and all the screens that dictate our life, is, is really very important to us. And uh, people who never thought they'd be making aesthetic decisions are making aesthetic decisions all the time now, you know, as they design websites and and make them more humane and accessible. But I think um, I think that the, the arts are important for that purpose, but I think the arts are a gateway to other cultures and um, particularly from my perspective in the West, you know, the, the more you know about art, the more you learn about that period in time because Nobody just looks at art now. They're all, they want to know about its context and what created it and what led to it. And there's so much learning um, and knowledge and wisdom in the ancient medieval worlds that we can take advantage of. And if, and if I can use art to open my students and myself up to that, I mean, it, it makes a huge difference. I mean, I was just reading something um, from St. Basil, <laughs> it's a long time ago, and his advice to youth. And if you read, I was just thinking, you know, my students should really read this. You know, he talks about all kinds of things that are still relevant for us today. And that's just one small window into the, into the medieval world. But the ancient world is full of wisdom. We're learning more about Islamic culture and, um, and, uh, and what it has to offer us and what it did in order to preserve our culture when we were in our theoretical dark ages, you know, they were very interested in the ancient world too. And, and as influenced by so-called, you know, Western Civ or the Greco-Roman experiences, we are. But people just don't know that, you know, they don't seem to want to make the time to learn that. And that's why it's, it's so wonderful to teach this rich material to students and and use it as a, as a means of opening up that entire culture to them, because it isn't produced in a vacuum. And uh, and anybody who studies Leonardo and describes him as an artist is probably mistaken. He was a scientist, you know, and just showing students that you know this incredible curiosity that he had about the natural world, uh, every aspect of it. You know, it's fascinating. So rather than you know, we tend to pigeonhole ourselves. Your business, I'm art history. Um, you know, by these disciplinary cliches that are really quite meaningless and were meaningless in the ancient world. You know, the, the Greeks in the high classical period were convinced that science, that is mathematics, and mathematical relationships were as important to art and architecture um, as whatever you and I might think of terms as creativity, you know, that it was essential for harmony and to create beauty. So they didn't have these artificial boundaries and fences between disciplines that, that we tend to set up and which a good core should try and work against, right? Should try and break down those barriers because life is much more interesting on the borders, right? and the boundaries between disciplines than, than a tunnel vision would otherwise suggest. Yeah, definitely. Well, 
I would, I'm sure we could go on for ages, but I'd like to wrap up asking a couple shorter questions. Okay. Um, so first of all, if you had to uh, spend the rest of your life living in one city in a different country, where would it be? I guess Rome. Okay. <laughs> Rome's pretty hard to beat. Well, that would be that would be a pretty special place. And sometimes I am an Italian citizen, so sometimes through my husband, sometimes I think it'd be nice to retire and teach a course now and then in Rome, either for students or for people my age, because the baby boomers are all retiring, trying to figure out something to do with themselves. Yeah, life could be worse. Than, Introducing people to Rome. Mm-hmm. I'm looking into studying abroad in Italy, actually. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, do think about it. Yeah, yeah. And try not try. Students don't want to do it, but live with a family. Maybe there are some drawbacks, but mostly there are rewards. I mean, you can live with, you know, people your own age anytime. You know, so and especially Americans, try and live with a Roman family. Your Italian will get much better too. Yeah. If you could have dinner with anyone from history, who would it be? Well, Charlemagne ate very well. So you'd always want to do a barbecue with Charlemagne. He loved roasts. And he loved um, big bathing parties. Marin has nothing on him. He would have these big, you know, he'd have 100 people swimming at a time in these hot baths in Germany. So maybe Charlemagne would be one. I would like to associate my book with a Byzantine emperor, uh, Michael VIII Paleologus. I'd certainly like to meet him and see if anything, all of my conjectures had any basis in fact. <laughs> but they probably wouldn't, I probably wouldn't eat as well there. Um, maybe Michelangelo. He's a pretty interesting character too. If you could send a message to every person in the United States, what would you say? Open up, be tolerant, you know. Try not to, to judge a book by its cover. We'll be on that. I just think life is richer with diversity. And yet it's so easy to to sort of put up those fences. But I don't think we should. I think it's it's really at our own loss. Finally, what does an ideal Saturday look like? <laughs> um, let's see. What could I share publicly about an ideal Saturday? Going to the farmer's market, um, breakfast with my husband, uh, dinner with any child that's in town or in the area, and uh, our family and friends. I love to cook. I'd love to have people over. I'd much rather cook and have people over at my dining room table than go out to a restaurant any day. Um, not because food isn't good out, but because conversation's much better at home, I think, uh, generally. just um, I feel very lucky. To, I have three daughters and, and a husband, as I said, who's tolerated me now for many years. So I feel very, very fortunate right now academics has not been kind to families and so many people I know don't have partners or spouses and sometimes no child not even one child and that's a real loss to them you know I just I so enjoy that aspect of my life and feel so fortunate to have some some balance between life and work you know thank you you're welcome and good luck with your project 
Thank you so much for listening to the show today. You can visit VoicesOfSantaClara.com or find this podcast on the iTunes podcast app. Special thank you to Miles Elliott for helping with the music, and we will be back soon with a new episode. So I will see you later. Have a good day.